This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by Leah and Matt or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Inspire Wealth Partners or Entrusted Accounting. Clients of Inspire Wealth Partners may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to Money Rules Don't Rule. I'm your host, Leah Haight, and today I have a very special guest in Marie Rice. Marie recently completed her PhD in accounting, so she is Dr. Marie Rice, and she has an emphasis in fraud, and she's an assistant professor at Siena College. I invited Marie here today because I wanted to talk about fraud and money. Those two go hand in hand, and she would be perfect for this conversation. Prior to entering academia, Dr. Rice was an anti-fraud, compliance, and audit professional with nearly 20 years of experience. As a practitioner, she managed forensic accounting engagements, including expert testimony. She advised senior leadership teams of small to mid-sized publicly traded companies on risk and compliance matters. Dr. Rice was a founding member and past president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the ACFE. And she's a founding member of the Justice for Fraud Victims Project at Gonzaga University. She was awarded ACFE's 2010 Outstanding Achievement in Outreach Community Service Award and the Spokane Police Chief's Citizen Award. I've known Dr. Rice for the last mm, 10, 15 years as we were colleagues in my very first accounting job, and I am quite honored today to welcome Dr. Marie Rice, PhD, Certified Fraud Examiner, and Certified Internal Auditor to our program today. Dr. Rice, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Thank you for having me, Leah, and it is great to be working with you again and talking about some of the things that we've talked about for so many years. I love fraud, as you know, and I'm really excited to chat with your listeners. Perfect. Marie, you are an excellent educator. I have taken continuing ed classes from you, and you just have such a curiosity as you approach this and such a compassion for the people that you work with and the stories you find. So I'm really, really interested to hear some of these stories as we go through this. So listeners, we're going to talk to Dr. Rice about just her brief career journey. I know that I just mentioned a bit of it, but really kind of fraud. What is it? Kind of the who, what, where, when, and whys of that detective work. We're going to talk about themes that Dr. Rice has noticed in her fraud career and why we talk about money and why we don't talk about money and even ultimately the consequences of that fraud. So let's just dive in, Dr. Rice, just a brief history of any of your career journey in addition to anything I've already talked about before we dive in with some of your earliest memories about money. So you've certainly covered the highlights, so thank you for that. Um, I did go back and forth in the accounting world between corporate and public accounting. And in public accounting um, and consulting work that I did, I did do quite a few fraud investigations, uh, working with both law enforcement and the legal community. So there's a big difference with fraud with whether or not we pursue criminal charges against somebody or if we are working with just civil attorneys on the plaintiff and defense side. And so there, there are different objectives for what we do and why we do it. I mean, I think that's really important for the audience to understand that when we talk about fraud, it's a very broad concept and it can involve things like we normally think about with um, Nigerian scams or, or sweetheart scams or things like that. And then it can also include all the way up to 
uh, financial statement frauds or insider trading or some of the more complex issues. So it's a very big topic. Um, and it's important for the listener to understand that when we're talking about fraud, that we may be talking about how fraud applies to businesses, but that is only one small piece of it. And fraud experts or anti-fraud professionals, as we like to be called, um, kind of have a more broad view, each of us specializing in our own area, though. That makes sense. It sounds like it's any practitioner, whether in the medical field, whether in the accounting field, whether in the legal field, you can really specialize a niche. So I think that's a really good point. When we're talking about such a broad topic today in the next 20, 25 minutes, keep in mind, it really is a broad umbrella and we might just hit some of the highlights for that. That's a really good point. Marie, do you have any earliest memories of money? We're trying to ask ourselves these questions and all of our guests just to try and get some stories out there about how and where we as humans start to learn about the concept of money. Absolutely. So as I reflected on that question, the very first memory I ever had was with my grandparents. And they were Depression era folks. Um, My grandfather was one of those in child labor at the age of 14, dropped out of school, all that stuff to help support the family. So my my grandparents literally had the cash under the mattress. Um, And when my grandmother would go to pay the bills, she had a notebook where she kept track of every bill that they were going to pay. And then my grandfather would take the cash to the post office and he would pay face to face for all the utility bills and, and whatever else they could pay in that way with cash. So they taught me at a very young age to be mindful of only spending what you can, not overspending, not overextending yourself, etc. That really stuck with me to this day. I. I just don't like to spend money. Um, my my children say that I'm cheap, not frugal, but um, you know I try to be. I try to balance it all, and um, I did instill in them that it's important to take care of your needs well before you take care of your wants. And that's that's kind of the guiding principle of my life: needs before wants. Do what you have to do. Take care of things. Take care of others, and then worry about that extra stuff. Oh my, that sounds like an incredible foundation and an incredible launching pad to just figure out how to use money, figure out how to relate to money, figure out how to spend money and enjoy it, as well as making sure that we have all of our bases covered. So that's a really, really healthy foundation. And kind of that that envelope method that a lot of people use right now is nothing new. It's been around for centuries. Incredible. Yeah. And we've talked in this episode in the past in terms of credit, like the access to credit has kind of wreaked havoc on a lot of our psyches and the way that we handle money. So back to the cash concept is really powerful. That's interesting. I'm really glad that stuck with you. And thanks for sharing that story with us. Is there anything you wish you knew then that you know now or any hard money lesson that, you know, where do you think you'd be without that? So yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I, so first of all, I was, I was married very young. I was only 19. My husband was 20. Um, and we did not understand how to manage credit. That wasn't necessarily something that I had been exposed to. Um, and so sure, early in our marriage, we got into that situation where if you were approved, that meant you had money to spend. And, and we learned very quickly that just because you're approved, just because it's allowed, it does not mean it should. <laughs> because certainly those things take longer to pay off if you don't understand the interest rates, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, in our early 20s, we learned a lot of lessons the hard way um, and learned how to set aside for ourselves first, save first before you take care of anything else, right? 
Um, so we, we learned that we did not do the, the cash envelope method. Um, I had tried it a couple of times and it was just easier for me to have a spreadsheet and do it that way. So that, that was the method that we came up with and it's worked for us for the last 25 years or so. Perfect. So some of those hard lessons in your early twenties, how, you know, hard work to get out of them, but did you have to rely on kind of friends and family for support to get you out of that debt to restart your basis? Or did you just kind of work hard and not do it again? Um, so we did have help from, um, from family for sure. Uh, particularly when we went to go buy our first house and then all of these issues were there and we had to deal with them. So yes, my mom and my grandma both helped us out. And then once we got the clean start, then we were able to uh, repay them um, and also take care of them when they needed things as well and as they got older, et cetera. I'm so glad to hear that. One thing I'm really interested in right now is this concept of support and community. And even when we feel so lonely and so depressed and there's nowhere else to turn, I'm really, really energized when I hear stories of like people leaning into each other. Because we all need help from time to time. We all make mistakes from time to time. Whatever those lessons are, that's really heartwarming that through a bunch of awareness and the vulnerability to go ask and be a part of a community where you can take care of each other, that's really heartwarming for me. So Dr. Rice, thank you so much for sharing some of those personal stories with us. And I hope our listeners are able to learn something from that and even figure out how they want to share their own stories and lessons with the kids and the young people in their life. So that is fantastic. Let's get right into fraud. Who, what, where, when, and why? To me, it's detective work. Now, I am not, I do not have the fraud brain. I am not an auditor. I wouldn't know where to smell it or see it if it slapped me in the face. So tell us really kind of what being a fraud detective, an anti-fraud specialist is like, and some of just the big pictures around it. I know I've heard about the fraud triangle before. Um, Anything, if you could just kind of start that conversation with us, I'm all ears. So the fraud triangle is a great place to start. And the reason for that is there are really two different type of occupational fraudsters. So when we look at um, fraudsters in the workplace, some are what we call psychopathic fraudsters. And these are folks who um, often have what we call the dark triad. So narcissistic, sadistic, or Machiavellian personality traits. Um, And these folks are very egregious. Um, They're very charismatic. They're the type of person who walks in a room and lights it up. Everybody wants to be them. Everybody wants to be with them. They live a magnanimous life, the, the larger than life. These are the Bernie Madoffs and the, the CEOs that we see on the news, right? These are the folks who go big or go home, as they say. And what's interesting about the psychopathic fraudster is they, they truly believe that they are entitled to certain things. Um, so the fraud triangle doesn't apply to them in full. But I have to tell you, these are the folks we see in the news. This is, this is the wolf of Wall Street, the thing Hollywood is made of. But the reality is they are few and far between. So while they are the ones grabbing the headlines, the majority of fraudsters are actually what we call opportunistic or situational fraudsters. And anybody who studied in the criminal justice world knows of situational crime. It just happens that there's an opportunity and a motive, and so therefore the crime occurs. And unfortunately, those who are opportunistic situational fraudsters are often in situations that they feel they can't share. So much like we were just talking about where having that vulnerability to reach out and ask for help, an occupational fraudster who who engages in those opportunistic crimes feels that they can't. They're embarrassed by this situation 
or they think it's just short term or it's just a little bit that they need to get through to the next paycheck or, or whatever. It starts small. And they truly believe that they are just doing what they have to to get by to survive and that they can't tell anybody about it because they're just too embarrassed. And they're often folks who are well-educated, they have a college degree, they've been at their job for a few years, they're between the ages of 31 and 50, and they usually have a, a good position. They're at least a senior staff or, or an, a manager level person. So they've got a good career, they usually have a family, and so they're just in a situation that they think they just need a little bit of help to get out of, and they have to be the one to help themselves. And it's really important that we understand from, from a compassionate standpoint of they don't know what the ramifications are of taking that step. They're just in a situation where it's a gray area of ethics for them. And they really have to convince themselves that it's okay to do this because they normally wouldn't behave in this way. And taking those mental steps, those cognitive processes of rationalizing what they're doing and why um, helps them overcome some of their angst, but it also puts up a barrier between them and those around them, right? So their behavior changes. Oftentimes we see when somebody's in a situation like this, their job performance starts to fail. They become anxious and snap at other people, right? They're, so they're more of a higher anxiety and a little bit less tolerant of others. And so we see some of these behavioral traits. And then what ends up happening is once somebody crosses that line, they don't know how to stop. And there are two reasons for this. First of all, even if their non-shareable financial problem is gone, they've gotten used to this increased money. When I talk to my students, I treat it like this. If you were to go to a coffee shop, let's say you wanted to go for a daily coffee, this is your thing and you suddenly have five extra dollars in your wallet every week. Are you going to go for the drip coffee or are you going to go to Starbucks? Most folks would say they'd probably prefer the premier coffee, right? They've got the extra money, they can afford it, why not? And that's what happens with fraudsters is they get past their non-shareable financial problem, but then they're so used to living at a certain lifestyle, they don't know how to decrease. It's very much like when people lose their jobs. You're so used to the income that you're receiving when you don't have that, changing your lifestyle is very difficult. Um, and so once a fraudster starts, they don't usually stop. Now, unfortunately, fraud is a crime of, that's really a violation of trust because these folks are entrusted with assets for the organization and then taking things for themselves personally is a violation of that trust. And that permeates. When an occupational fraudster takes that action, they don't just hurt the organization, they actually also hurt their personal relationships. The violation of trust, this anxiety they feel permeates through their close personal relationships, their family, their friends. And so what I see as an outcome is that the fraudster loses their livelihood because they can no longer work in accounting if they are caught and prosecuted for their actions. They lose their family, they lose their friends, they often lose their home, their cars, all of their assets. So they literally have to start a brand new life. And that is something that most fraudsters, when they're in that moment of having this burdensome, non-shareable financial problem, they don't see past it 
to understand the true ramifications and really everything that is going to come out of the situation and all of the relationships that they break and the people that they hurt. They just don't see it because all they see is this one problem that they feel like they have to deal with. Oh, Marie. Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath and try and absorb that wonderful information you just shared with us. So a couple things are coming to mind. First of all, you mentioned it's kind of age 31 to 50. So people in their prime working years and also in kind of the most intense period of their life in terms of career and family. So a lot of pressure, a lot of keeping up with the Joneses. One thing we've talked about in prior episodes is when we do get raises, a lot of times we don't save that money. We elevate our lifestyle. So we get used to things. Perfect. Okay. So we're looking at this general age range between 30 and 50 for people who might perpetrate fraud. And we talked about the fraud triangle and I heard two pieces of it, motive and opportunity. So we've got a couple things going on. And then you also said something about how we kind of rationalize and justify without understanding the full consequences. So you kind of took us through this whole, this whole gamut and I get it kind of from start to finish If something difficult happens in a person's life. They find that they have opportunity and opportunity for concealment. There's not a lot of sharing because there may be a lot of shame or I'm not sure where to turn for help for their problem. Okay. And then we get to the end of the road when and if it's caught is it is completely devastating. It absolutely breaks and isolates a person. Am I catching the bulk of this correctly? Yes, you are. And so to recapture, the fraud triangle is opportunity, motive, and rationalization. So it's the three components that you just outlined. Yes. Opportunity. So there's a window where I might be able to solve my problem. Motive. I've got a real sticky problem to solve. And rationalization. I'm able to kind of convince myself or fudge my ethics that this might be okay. I deserve it. Or no one's going to know, etc. I'm hearing this right? Okay. And and we are talking about occupationally in the in this moment. So imagine someone in a workplace. And I know that I've been in in jobs where my employer will talk to us about like those pens and pens we provide for you to do your job, would you take them home? That could be considered stealing because I, as the employer, bought them to provide for you to use here at the job. And I, and I noticed in colleagues over the years that that was something that they didn't really notice or take seriously. They needed an extra notebook at home and they'd just go to the supply closet and take one home and it was fine. So I think that at, before we point fingers at other people for how they rationalize their choices, we should always take a look at ourselves and how we rationalize our own. And if we take a real big step back, we can kind of always see fraud is not just like big dollar, big ticket concealment. It can even happen in the small ways. Absolutely. In fact, it, more often than not, it happens in the small ways. So just as an example, when we were talking about the psychopathic fraudsters, the average financial statement fraud is over $900,000 per incident. The average occupational fraud for opportunistic fraudsters embezzlement is only $150,000. So it's significantly lower dollars on average. However, the average asset misappropriation, which is the embezzlement we were just talking about, lasts for 18 to 24 months. Whereas a financial statement fraud is shorter in duration. It's usually only 12 to 18 months, but it's bigger dollars. Therefore, it gets more notoriety. Got it. Got it. So financial statement fraud, you know, maybe we're talking public companies and they are required to be audited every year. And so there might be a chance for it to be caught sooner. It's not a guarantee. Auditors and accountants cannot guarantee that they can find this. But the other type of fraud, the embezzlement fraud. Asset misappropriation. 
The asset misappropriation fraud is the one where we might be, you know, taking supplies home in our personal work bag or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So those are generally lower dollar amounts, but they might last longer because the dollar amount never kind of peaks on anybody's screen. And at the same time, I can also imagine with this rationalization, when you are in a team of people who also quote unquote, believe the same as you, that it is okay to take office supplies home with them, there's no one to stand up and kind of put the brakes on that. So that also gets tricky. Not only do we rationalize it to ourselves, but we start to get that confirmation of that rationalization when we're in a group of people at work. Can we talk, um, Dr. Rice, just a little bit about the motivation piece? I know you mentioned a little bit in this age group that there are some stressors and financial stressors. Does that seem to be the largest kind of motivation for fraudsters and perpetrators? Yes. So the the two most common reasons for occupational fraud to occur are living beyond one's means and perceived financial pressures. Those are consistently reported by the ACFE, so that's the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, in their report to the nations. Those are the top two uh, ways or reasons that fraud occurs. It truly is the situation of whether you're going for greed or just because you're in a non-shareable financial problem. What would be a non-shareable financial problem? Just anything that anyone feels too embarrassed to talk about out loud? Or something that they just experienced. Uh, One that you're familiar with that happened to me in my life was my son suddenly needing brain surgery. He had an undiagnosed large intracranial cyst. We didn't know about it. He got a concussion. Suddenly he needs to have brain surgery. And that's a large financial bill right there. Um, When you're not expecting it, when you're not prepared for it, those things happen, right? I happen to have been in a good spot in my life where I was able to share that financial problem, but had I not been able to voice that, to reach out for help, to seek out support, certainly when those bills came in, that would have been very devastating. But it's not something that I wouldn't take on because my child's life is far more important than any any money, right? Um, and so that's the type of situation that folks face is they have something big come up, whether it's medical or um, just a bill out of the blue. Um, Adjustable rate mortgages were a big one for a while when those balloon payments came due. Folks just aren't prepared for it. They don't have enough save and suddenly they've got this big financial problem and they know that there's nothing they can do. They don't know anybody else who can take on that burden for them. And so they think they have to solve it themselves instead of just saying, hey, I've got this issue. I don't know how to solve it. Can my creditor work with me? Can my family help me out a little bit? Can I have extra time? Any of those options are viable, but when they feel like they have to solve the problem and there's nobody to help them, they sometimes resort to fraud to do so. I can relate to that, Dr. Rice. My own way of behaving in this world is to be so planned for everything that absolutely nothing could go wrong. And that is the first chance when things do go wrong. And so to no fault of my own, things happen. Life happens. And when we can take a pause and set aside our ego and reach out and share and lean into that vulnerability, like that is the only way to get through this life. So I think now is a good time to talk about what are some of those resources that anyone in a similar 
non-shareable financial situation, like a, a rocket from left field that just knocks you off of your game. One of the resources that comes to mind, honestly, to me is, you know, the Small Business Administration. There are Small Business Administration centers all over the country, and it might just be a first place to start. You talked about working with your creditors. You talked about leaning into your friends and family. I think another one that came to mind for me is the sense that an employer can't help you if they don't know what you need. So we might want to try and hide it because I don't want to get fired if I have this health issue, I might try and hide it if I have to take some time off work or, you know, we try and hide it for fear of repercussion or fear of judgment or ostracism, I'm not going to say that word, <laughs> for fear of judgment or being pushed out. But at the same time, people can't help you if they don't know. Yeah. And, and that's really the bottom line. So you said two things that are really key. Life happens and people can't help you if they don't know. Those are absolutely imperative. And I'm going to flip a little bit of what you asked. So you were asking for how folks can reach out. One of the most effective fraud prevention measures that I can recommend for businesses is to participate in employee support plans. So a lot of consolidated HR entities, a small business association has arms where they can have shared HR resources for small businesses, right? Um, those are folks that pool their resources together for small businesses to offer things like employee support plans. And those tools are very effective because they often include financial counselors, therapists, and other health, mental health professionals, and then also medical professionals. So they have folks on staff that work their hotlines that can help assess the situation and get people to the right resources. And I think it's really important that individuals understand that when they are facing a financial issue, that there are going to be these other tangential points that are going to hit them as well, right? If you have financial issues, it's probably causing you stress. You might need to talk to a therapist or somebody else who can help you learn how to deal with that piece as well. And so knowing those resources within your own immediate community, whether that's family, friends, or people that you can reach out to to ask for referrals, that's number one, but also looking at your community resources and seeing um, whether your employee offers an employee support plan. And again, for employers, I can't emphasize that one enough as a great fraud prevention tool or whether there's hotlines that you could reach out to. There are so many different community resources, but most of all, it's important to understand that life happens and it happens to everybody and you're not alone. It's okay. You can get through anything. You know, I always tell my children, you have successes in life and you have learning opportunities and you never know what you're going to get at any given point in time, but you can always learn from whatever you do. That is a great one. Yeah. I have used employer assistance programs. I've, I know them as EAPs or the employer, the employer assistance, talk to your employer. And if they don't have it, they can get access to it through things like the collaboration of resources for small business. So yeah. And, and it's free to employees. Honestly, it's a very low cost to employers and it's free to employees. So there's no reason not to reach out for five or six sessions with financial support, with mental health support, et cetera. Yeah. So start there. Reach out to your financial advisors. If you know professors in town, if you know um, financial professionals in town, reach out and they can point you in the right direction. So there's resources, there's support out there. Whether or not you think you have it by nature of being human, we're all in it together. 
Dr. Rice, this has been incredible information for, for me today and hopefully for our listeners and just understanding what goes on behind fraud. Hopefully we can be slow to point fingers and quick for compassion and understanding. A lot goes on. It's not just like a knee-jerk decision that people seem to make. There's this complicated triangle between motive, opportunity, and concealment, rationalization. To the end of that, we've talked about maybe how this happens and why it happens and some of the fallout of fraud perpetration. Dr. Ice, what about any eye-popping stories or concrete examples of these life-altering consequences you can share with us today? So I always think of a, a couple of stories. Um, and, and the first one I will say was one of the first investigations that I was a part of. And it was a very unfortunate situation as we were conducting the fraud investigation which was in a rural area, so small town. The alleged perpetrator had been working at a facility and had engaged in some check tampering. And while we were there, her son was attending his senior football banquet. And unfortunately, he found out from his teammates who had heard from their parents that his mother was being investigated. And it was really financially devastating for the organization. It was also devastating for this family. And the alleged perpetrator, unfortunately, lost her family. She ended up having to move away. She went from having an executive position in an organization to being a receptionist. But her son, to this day, as far as I know, has not spoken to her. And it's been almost 15, 20 years. I think that was the hardest thing for me, just as an investigator to see the effect on him. Um, you know, your senior year is supposed to be full of fun and joy, right? It's supposed to be your, your last of everything and so much excitement. Um, and his football banquet was tainted by this news. And, and that's really awful. And on the flip side or on the organization side, they did not re recover nearly as much as they lost. This alleged perpetrator was with them for several years, and it was a couple hundred thousand dollars that went out the door. Um, and at the end of the day, the judge remanded um, 30 days community service. Actually, it wasn't even jail time. She was ordered to repay $80,000. As far as I know, payment was never received. So um, usually with the courts, as long as you're paying about $25 a month, that, that's fine. But even if she had been paying $25 a month, the organization never would have recouped what it lost. So there was financial loss, there was relationship loss, and, and this person had to start her life all over again, which was just really sad. And of course, her son was devastated. And I, I think of another story that's similar. So um, it was even somebody I knew personally who I ended up investigating through a nonprofit. That was tough to begin with, but then um, unfortunately, that gentleman was living a double life um, and he was funding his second life with nonprofit funds. And of course, his wife found out about all of this through the investigation. They had been married for nearly 50 years and he also lost his full family. He was a CPA. He lost his license, so he cannot practice, could not practice anymore. Unfortunately, the situation was so devastating to him that it not only caused him mental health issues, but he had physical health repercussions as well. And he passed away shortly after the end of the trial, which was really very sad. His wife sold the house that they lived in, and that is how those nonprofits were made whole, but she lost her home in doing so. So that's why I say there's just 
so much more to these situations than what people realize up front. And I really encourage anybody who is feeling that non-shareable financial problem to reach out to their employers through the resources we've talked about. Just because you have opportunity to, to take that action does not mean you need to solve the problem yourself. Um, and it should not be your motive for doing so. <clears throat> because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself, you have to live with your family and your friends, and relationships are far more important. Dr. Rice, incredible stories. Incredible. And they're real. They're absolutely real. The numbers don't lie. Listeners, we have talked about this and talked about this. The numbers don't lie. They will always catch up with you, whether they're success numbers or opportunities for for learning numbers. The numbers don't lie. So um, it's not worth it, not because of the financial risk, but the relationship risk. Like you are risking your life when you do this. And so... I hope you know that there are resources and people to lean on for support. So Dr. Rice, thank you for leading us through this conversation today about money, about where we might find shame and vulnerability in there to talk about the fraud triangle and what it means and that it exists and that there are resources out there when you hit a hard time. So if you have any other final comments, takeaways, I will lead us home with our ending quotes for the day. So no, I just thank you very much, Leah. It's been great to work with you again. And I hope all of your listeners take something away from this conversation. And I'm happy to answer any questions they may have in the future. Perfect. Well, Dr. Rice, I will put your contact info in our show notes. So yes, listeners, she is a valuable resource to our community, someone worthy to know and and have in your corner. Dr. Rice, thank you so much for your compassion and your wisdom and your your strong efforts on this regard. So Listeners, as we do, Henry David Thoreau, that is mine, which none can steal from me. And also a Yiddish folk saying, nobody tries to steal your troubles and no one can take your good deeds. That's all from us today. I hope you learned something. And if, again, if you do have questions, reach out to either of us and we can help point you in the right direction. Take care, everyone. Have a great week. Bye-bye. <music>